Today we are uh, today we're in uh, Malachi chapter two. Uh, we're going to cover the last verse. One of those one of those strange places where if you look at the arrangement of the text, you're kind of wondering why did they why did they number the why did they break off the chapter there? Um, but regardless, we'll we'll move on with the text for today. Um, Malachi chapter two verses seventeen through chapter three verse five. Uh, just going to remind you of the, the literary arrangement here. We have disputes. Uh, the text is divided into roughly six disputes. Um, and, uh, oh, sorry, excuse me there. We'll get started with that next section in just a second. Um, I will kind of remind you of where we are in the text as we move through the passage. Uh, where we are in the chapter, just I like the arrangement better this way. Um, but just to give you kind of an idea of where we are in the letter as a whole. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into this, uh, into the passage for today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that you have given us uh, a very clear account of who you are and, and who we are as human beings, uh, that you have really essentially told us some of the, the same truth over and over and over again throughout Scripture, uh, just as clearly as you had, had told Israel over and over throughout, um, throughout the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that we would be attentive today, that we would be ready to hear from you, uh, and that you would reveal those things in our heart that need, uh, that need attention. Uh, God, as only you can do. Thank you uh, that you have covenanted uh, with us, that you have uh, bonded yourself to us through your word, and that you have made us able uh, to know you uh, through the, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and through the, uh, through the cross, through the, the righteous life, and the, uh, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Father, help us to learn from you, about you, uh, today, and be more like Jesus as a result. In his name we pray, amen. All right, I'm going to kind of do what we did last week. We're going to kind of go through, I'm going to highlight the important things, and then we're going to talk about uh, today's lesson. So, um, in chapter 2, verse 17, Malachi says this to the people. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, it's kind of strange. Um, you know, we see these words, and we're like, what, is what does he really mean by this? Uh, and, the way I took it when I first read it was much like some of the other um, disputes that we see here in the text, uh, is that it's not as if the people are actually hanging back and saying the things that they're being accused of, uh, but, but rather that the underlying attitude of their heart, regardless of what their words are on the outside, are, con are, um, are conveying the information that the Lord is accusing them with, right? So, um, anyway... Uh, with this particular phrase, it's a little bit confusing because you're like, um, is that really what's going on? Are they actually saying stuff like this? Are they actually calling out, where is justice? I thought we were serving a God of justice. Where is the God of justice? And so there's two general ways that commentators take this, these phrases. Uh, one is like I explained, and that this is really uh, the inner attitude that manifests itself outwardly in disobedience. Right. So by your disobedience... Um, specifically to the priests here, by, by your disobedience, priests, 
you're saying that these people who are bringing bad sacrifices and you who are offering them in a, in a, in a, in a disobedient way, not conforming to the law, that you are saying by this, oh, even these people who are doing evil, they're acceptable, they're good in the sight of the Lord. Through that and through religious platitudes, through re- re- repeated religious phrases, you know, even, even in spite of their disobedience, you're saying that those who do evil are good and acceptable in the sight of God. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that, you know, judging by the, the, the political and the socioeconomic uh, uh, sort of um, state of Israel at the time, if you look back at Ezra and, ne- Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that, yes, they have a temple, but it's not quite the temple they imagined based on the word of the prophets. They have, the land is restored to them, but they don't have a king, and they're not really in charge. They have this governor who's under uh, the Persians at this time. So they don't really have their king like they thought they were going to have. They have a priesthood, but even the priests are looking down with contempt on their own service and not seeing the value of their own service. So there's, there's a return, but is it really a return? They're living in their own land, but their crops are poor. And the people around them are conceivably more prosperous than they are and have power over them. So is this really the return that they're promised? And that's the way the other, the other uh, commentators take this. That they're like, wait, where, where's the justice? God seems to be pleased with these people outside rather than pleased with us, his people. So there's two ways you can take this. But either way, it's an accusation against the Lord. And so this is the way I summed it up. Hey, hey, Judah, I am sick of your insults. I'm tired of your contemptuous words. I'm tired of the, 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 the conclusions you're drawing from the situation around you. I'm tired of your insincere worship, and I'm tired of your complaining. You've tired the Lord with your words. It begins chapter 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? A couple things I want us to see about this. Um, One, we have two people coming. Uh, this word, my messenger, again, same word as the title of the, uh, of the letter, of the book, Malachi. My messenger is, means, my, uh, Malachi means my messenger. Um, but he's not referring to himself here. Notice he says, I will send. The Lord is speaking. He says, I will send my messenger. Uh, and I, I think this is rightly attributed to John the Baptist, this first messenger. And then we have a second one coming. Uh, we notice that the first one he says, my messenger will prepare the way before me. There's all sorts of clues in the next five verses or so that reveal this is talking about John the Baptist and the coming of the Messiah. And there are also clues here that tell us that when we're talking about the Messiah, we're talking about God himself. Now, while it's true that not each one by themselves would positively say it has to be God, but there's a couple that are, that are a couple that are very exclusive to God. So we have, I'm sending my messenger before me. 
Well, sometimes the Lord talks about coming to his people, but he doesn't necessarily mean he's coming personally, right? I'll visit my people in justice. I'll visit my people in judgment. I'll visit my people in deliverance. But God doesn't literally himself show up and like sort of appear in the sky or anything. But he's saying that his acting on behalf of Israel is an appearance. So this by itself doesn't necessarily have to mean God himself. But taken together with all the other clues in the passage, we understand that the Messiah is the Lord. The Messiah is divine. And I think the one that's most telling uh, is here in the second part of uh, verse 1 where he says, then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. There's no, no prophet, no priest, no king, no, no individual in, in Israel has ever been able to say of the temple, it's my temple. It's my temple. Or nobody else could say of, of him, it's his temple. And so I think this is the one where we really, have to, we really have to say, there's no disputing it. This is talking about the divine. Even the word Lord there, uh, Adon, is sometimes used to mean a person. A person who's a master over someone else, even though it is also used of God. Um, messenger of the covenant, uh, obviously, we look at, we look at uh, Moses as the messenger of the first covenant. He's the, the human through whom God gave the first covenant. Um, but taken all together, this has to mean the Messiah, and it has to mean that he's divine. One of the things I really love about this question at the end is we could look at it a couple of different ways. Um, who could endure the day of his coming? Um, who could stand when he appears. But then he kind of explains it in the next passage. The way I summed it up here was, the long-awaited Messiah will come and he will inaugurate the new covenant. Uh, I know he doesn't say specifically new covenant, but I would remind you where we are. The people are faithless. They've broken the covenant. Their priests are faithless. They've, they've profaned the covenant. So who is left to intercede? What, can, what benefit can they have from the Old Covenant if they've broken it, if they've shown contempt for it, and if they don't have any priests to act in the right way under that covenant? What's left for them? They need a new covenant. But will you be able to bear his coming? Who can stand in that day? Four. I love that word, for, therefore, because, and so. All these phrases tell us, here's the reason. So why will it be hard to bear the coming of the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant? Because he's going to be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. The Messiah will come. His mission will be to purify for himself a people so that acceptable sacrifices will again be made to the Lord. And you might look at this with your knowledge of Jesus Christ and your knowledge of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the, the understanding that you have. But I want you to think for a second 
in terms of the people who heard this message, and in terms of the people who might still hear this message today because they don't know God through Jesus Christ, what is God saying here when he says, a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap? We see the implications to Jesus, right? John the Baptist said, the one who comes after me is mightier than me. He's going he's to uh, baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And I believe that's what he's referring to right back here to Malachi, the refiner's fire. Or to the many passages in the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to refine you like silver. Or some of the scary passages where he says, when I'm done with this refining process, is there going to be anything left of you except dross? Dross is the leftover, the impurities that are supposed to be burned off. Well, God says, is there going to be anything left over when I refine you? The second aspect of this refiner's fire, or if you think about a launderer's soap, um, for those of you who have, who have ever used lye soap or older, uh, an older style of soap, it can be, can be pretty strong. It can actually, if you, if you don't let the lye soap sit long enough and, um, and, and age long enough, it actually burn your skin. It's pretty strong. This process of refining is not just like this beautifying where you're going to walk through and have a makeover, right? This is you need to be cleaned from your core. You are rotten on the inside, and you need to be heated up and beaten against the anvil and heated up again and beaten against the anvil. You need to be purified. You need to be heated up and refined. You need to be scrubbed. Because you are filthy. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. The Messiah will come and his mission will be to purify for himself a people so that acceptable sacrifices will again be made to the Lord. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among, uh, among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Point out the irony here of just this inclusion of the word justice. He talks about all the sins that Israel is committing, and that when he comes, he's going to be testifying against all their sin that they commit, all the wickedness of their hearts lived out in their actions. And even though one of their complaints was, where is the God of justice? He says, you, you deprive people of justice in your lives right now. Even though I've told you to take care of the widows and the fatherless. James says later, what's true religion except taking care of widows and orphans? And here he, he mentions the depriving the foreigners as, long as, as well as the widows and the, and the orphans of justice. You just cry out for justice? But you oppress people, and you don't treat people with justice, and you deprive other people of justice. The heart of it is this, the Lord's going to come to you, and he's going to testify against all your wickedness. The Lord says, I will testify against those who don't fear me. Again, we see pointed back to the attitude of the people and their disposition toward God. So what's the big idea? What's going on here in this section in Malachi? Yes, he's promising the Messiah. I don't want to take away from that. But why is he promising the Messiah? You need to understand the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. 
One, in the first chapter, he says, you're unwilling to accept my love. I say that I've loved you and you doubt me. You doubt all the covenant promises that I've made to you. You doubt the covenant love that I have that made me make the covenant promises in the first place. Your attitudes, your attitudes toward me are corrupt. You say you're my children, but you don't honor me. You say I'm your master, but you don't obey me. You're unable and you're unwilling to respond positively to my warnings. He says, if you would just resolve in your heart to honor me, but you don't. And so I'm going to curse your blessings. You can't even respond positively to my warnings because you don't take me seriously. The motivation of your obedience is corrupt. In 2.9, he says, you're... Uh, how's, how's he put it? I just lost the word. Uh, 2.9, he says, I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the, all the people, talking to the priests, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. What does that really mean, partiality, partiality in the matters of the law? Now, specifically what God was talking about, maybe what he's talking about here, their faithlessness and in, in, in divorcing their wives, and their faithlessness with regard to the sacrifices, but it may be more than that too, right? It's a selective obedience. And frankly, everybody does that today. And then they point to their righteousness and they say, but I do this. You know, a person who really values truth despises a liar. But he's still a thief. And a person who values hard work will hold up a lazy person and say, look at this piece of trash. But he's cheating on his wife. You see what I'm saying? Like We tend to like, make a big deal. Humanity makes a big deal about the ways that, they, uh, that are important to them that also match up with the morality of God. But we're very, very quiet about those areas where we know we're sinning. And that's what the people were doing there. Selective obedience, selective teaching. Some of the most uncomfortable times that any preacher will have is when he has to preach about something that he's weak in. But don't dare skip it, right? Don't dare skip it. Even the motivation for your obedience is corrupt. You misunderstand and you misrepresent me. That's what 217 is all about. You are so corrupt that you cannot be. Righteousness is beyond your ability, the Lord says, unless I come and I clean you and I make you righteous. Unless I come and purify you, you will remain corrupt. In spite of, a, this is what really kills me, right? But this is not just the state of Israel, this is the state of man. Because God's word has been revealed over the whole world. The Bible is, is available in almost every language. Certainly it's being preached and the evangelistic message is being carried out in probably every language or close to it. But here, in spite of a millennium of divine revelation, 
prophecies and fulfillment, apostasies and revivals, blessings and curses, pleading prophets, angelic allies, earthly enemies, and seeing those enemies defeated by God in miraculous signs and miraculous deliverance. The nation of Israel was still made up of human beings, and all of humanity has fallen. The point that I wanted us to see here really were two major points. One's a, one we've already talked about, and that's the covenant, so I'm going to talk about that secondly. But the other is the doctrine of total depravity. This is something we don't touch on a whole lot of, but all of the Bible teaches this. And this is a point that the people in Malachi's day needed to understand, really the people in any day, need to understand is the moral inability of man to be good. Now, I, I got a couple of points from the Westminster Confession of Faith here for you, um, points that I think that are really important to this. These are the, the middle two points from chapter 6, um, which deals with the fall of man into sin, sin itself, and then um, uh, the corruption of sin. But these, this is point 3 and 4 that helps us to really understand what is total depravity when we talk about total depravity. They, which refers to Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, that is, the sin of Adam and Eve eating the fruit and falling into uh, disobedience. That sin was imputed, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, meaning us, and all human beings alive, descending from them by ordinary generation. You know, as as. People had kids who had kids who had kids who had kids. The corruption of our first parents, Adam and Eve, passed to all of us. And so all of humanity has fallen. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. What he says here is, from the original sin, and original sin is not, Adam and Eve's sin, but the contamination and the corruption of all human nature, all their progeny, all their descendants, because of their sin. You understand? It's that inner corruption that passes to all humanity. That's original sin. And so we say in, four, in point four, all instances of sin, whether they be in your thoughts or in your deeds, they all proceed forth from that original corruption of your nature. Same point that Jesus is pointing to in, um, I don't remember the chapter now, but in, in Matthew when he addresses uh, the Pharisees over complaining about the disciples' unwashed hands and eating. And he says, look, sin doesn't come into you because you eat something and you haven't washed your hands. Sin comes out of your heart because you have corrupted hearts, corrupted natures. Paul is particular about um, total depravity in several places. Uh, in the second half of chapter 1, uh, Paul talks about how the human mind, the human heart, the human will, and eventually bodies, even our human bodies, are all affected by the corruption of sin. But I think he gets to a really great point here in chapter 8 where he says that the mind governed by the flesh, that is the sinful nature, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This 
I think is what Malachi is trying to get at to the people in Israel's day because there's no way you can possibly come to repentance if you don't think anything's wrong. You can't understand the level of your depravity unless somebody explains it to you and really unless God opens your eyes to be able to see it. If you tell somebody they're doing something wrong, most of the time, if they, if they agree with you that what they're doing is wrong, they're going to think that the way to solve it is an is a Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous sort of approach. I just need to buckle down and do it. Or I need to find another thing to take that place of that bad habit so I can have a good habit. What nobody realizes is that you need a total soul overhaul. You need a change from the inside. You can't change your heart. Only God can see the heart. Only God understands the heart. Only God can can, can heal the heart. That's why uh, Jeremiah's response to God when when he pointed that wickedness and that depravity of the heart out, he says, well, then you... You wash me and I'll be clean. You heal me and I'll be healed. That's why David said in Psalm 51, wash me with hyssop and I'll be whiter than snow. Because if God's doing the washing, if God's doing the cleaning, then I will be clean. The second aspect that we already talked about a little bit was the idea of the covenant. Know that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Malachi's point to the people at this point is, you've all despised the covenant. Your only chance at holiness, your only chance at rightness with God is through this covenant that he's made with you, and you can't keep it up. Um, There are, I don't know, there's, a lot of different kind of covenants in the Bible, but I was, I was thinking about two of those. I was thinking about covenants whereby man has some conditions and some, some uh, uh, standards that he has to meet, and God has promises that he, that he gives to them. Like we saw this when we were going through Deuteronomy, right? That there's all these blessings and curses. There's blessings for obedience, and there's curses for disobedience. And we have seen through the, the whole um, history unfolding in the, in the Old Testament that those things that God had promised to bless and curse Israel with, there in the end of Deuteronomy, they happened. They all came to pass, just as God laid it out beforehand. He's the God who declares the end from the beginning. God gave the people a covenant, and, and he gave it, they had, they had certain things they had to do to have access to the blessings of that covenant. And they didn't do it. This isn't God giving us a standard that we cannot live up to at all. It's God giving us a standard we cannot live up to on our own. We were not created in autonomy, and we were not meant for autonomy. Autonomy likes being separate from a law or being a law unto yourself. We weren't created that way. We weren't created for that purpose. We were created to be in submission to God. The standards that God gives us are only possible through a regenerated life. A new heart that's been purified through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He brings 
Judah to this point so that they will be ready for the coming of the Messiah. And they'll be ready to be washed. And you shoot forward and you think about the people that listened to John the Baptist. They were the tax collectors and the prostitutes, Jesus says, to the Pharisees. And he said, and they enter the kingdom of heaven before you. It was, it was those people who actually agreed with God, we're evil, we're corrupt, we're sinners, we need you to wash us. And the ones who insisted on their own righteousness, they were the ones who went home not justified, but condemned. God says to the people through Malachi, there's only one solution for you. I need to come myself, and I need to wash you. But I am coming. I am coming. You might say, how does this apply to us? Right? We have the full teaching of the gospel. I would remind you that by the time Malachi's day came, spiritual giants like David and Samuel had already lived and died. They had lived in opposition to God. They had come to an understanding of who God was. And they had trusted in God and they followed God. All sorts of biblical heroes had already come to the point of their own sinfulness, repented of that sinfulness, and trusted in God. They might not have had a full understanding of the Messiah, but they knew what it meant to repent, and they knew the corruption of their own hearts, and they knew what it meant to experience the forgiveness, the divine grace of God. That's how come they could write about it. How does this apply to us? Well, because we're in the same state, right? If you're born into a church, you're not born into the kingdom of God. If you've been taught the word since you were a kid, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. One of my big arguments, uh, this is kind of an aside, but I'm going to say it anyway, one of my big arguments with the idea of covenant theology is that we ought to include children in the covenant community, like outwardly. I, I don't agree with that. Because I think that regenerated people need to make up the covenant community. I think there's no basis for throwing people out of the church when they sin, when you have you know, kids from the age of, you know, whenever you baptize them, you know, I don't know how early they baptize them, up until whenever they actually come to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're openly sinning. So how do you deal with people like that? Do you throw out an 11-year-old out of the church? You know what I mean? So this is one of my big, big things against including children in the covenant uh, community. My question to you today is, what do you actually say about sin and about God by the way you deal with sin in your life. What do you say about God when you sin? Now granted, your words mean very little, right? Because you could say all the right things, as some of these people in Malachi's day were saying, and your heart is still wrong. This is total self-examination. I can't, can't do this for you. What's your attitude towards sin in your life? Because that'll tell you what your attitude toward God is. Secondly, when you see injustice in the world, how do you respond? Whether it's in your own life or whether it's in another country. When you see injustice, what's your, what's your, what's your go-to? Where are you, God? Is that your go-to? 
There, again, it's all about attitude, right? Because the, the, the lament psalms are all about the psalmist saying, I see this discrepancy between the God that I know and love and worship and the world that he's created. I see this discrepancy, and I don't understand why isn't there justice? Why are these, these poor people who serve the Lord being mistreated and oppressed, and these wealthy people who hate God and have no concern for him, why are they succeeding? I don't understand. Or you see two different questions in Luke chapter 1 between Zechariah and Mary, and they're both asking the same question. I don't understand. How's this going to work out? But Gabriel points out to Zechariah that you're, you're not believing. Right? So when you see in the injustice in the world, again, I can't judge you about this. Right? This is something you have to look inwardly on and say, what's your response? Do I get angry at God when I see injustice, whether it's over there or in my own life? When I see a wicked person succeeding, am I angry at God because of that? Because that'll tell you something about your heart. Kind of already led into this one, so we'll just kind of move past. Radical corruption is R.C. Sproul's preferred term for total depravity got to agree with him it helps us to understand um, better what the term total depravity means because it doesn't mean that every human being is bad as they possibly could be doesn't mean that doesn't mean that you don't have the ability uh, to 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 reason doesn't mean that logic is beyond your grasp but it means that your mind your heart and your will are all negatively affected by sin. So that what Paul says in Romans is true. Your mind is futile, your thinking is corrupt, your heart is corrupt, your bodies are being corrupted and defiled, or in chapter 8, you cannot please God. You cannot obey. Radical corruption, radical comes from the idea of the word core or heart. And that's why he chose that particular usage because it means from the very core of yourselves, from the very core of humanity, all of humanity has fallen. That's really what total depravity points to. And that's why we need a God who sees the heart and knows how to heal it. That's why we need Ephesians 2. That's why we need the grace of God and the lives of people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. One of, the, one of the aspects of that in chapter 2 in Ephesians is that you can't respond. Just like the people in Malachi who heard God say, you need to resolve to honor me in your heart. And they didn't do it. So, have you understood your radical corruption? Have you understood your personal need of the refining, soul-transforming work of Jesus Christ? I hope that's the case. If you haven't, then have a conversation with anybody around you. Have a conversation with me or Jay or Jason. Um, if you're a kid, have a conversation with your parents. Whatever the case may be, if you realize that you are still depraved in your soul, 
and you're still more concerned about your own personal happiness than the holiness of God, then you need the transforming work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with reading uh, something from Isaiah 42. I'm not going to explain it or anything. I just I found it really, really beautiful that this conversation, that, that question they asked, where is the God of justice? And you see the repetition of the word justice in, in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, describing the coming of Jesus Christ. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth and all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release those from the dungeon, uh, who, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols, or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, the new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Now, he's a God who declares the end from the beginning. He's a God who says he will come and he will establish justice. And he did. And he lived a righteous life. And he died an atoning sacrificial death so that any who might believe in him would have their sins forgiven? Yes. Would have righteousness imputed where before sin had been imputed? Yes. But where that radical soul-changing, life-transforming change that only the Holy Spirit can do. Only God can do that. You cannot fix yourselves. It's the same message that Malachi gave to the people. It's the same message that I respond and repeat to us. It's only the power of God working in us that can transform us. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father,